Today's scripture reading will be found in Exodus chapter 20. I'll be starting in verse 18, and I'll be reading to the end of the chapter. In your pew Bibles in front of you, they'll be on page 61. Again, that's Exodus chapter 20, starting at verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. They stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings your sheep and your oxen, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up the steps of my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. This is the word of the Lord. just take a look at you <laughs> what a wonderful beautiful group of people it's so nice to have um, many of you back a bunch of you uh, sickos that have been under the weather for the last couple of weeks um, I think we're by God's grace coming out of that I look out and I see so many uh, servants especially those of you who have served so uh, well the families over the last month or so that have uh, lost loved ones Think of your service to uh, Sharon, to the Whiteman family, um, to the Losey family, and then yesterday to uh, the Miller and the Miracle family. Uh, these beautiful flowers here are just a reminder to us, a gift of the family uh, to us, uh, so that we might remember and honor our friend David Miller, who has now gone on to glory ahead of us. And uh, just great, so gr I'm so thankful to be your pastor and um, for your love for the Lord and your example to me and to each other. Well, on this uh, cold January morning, we've traipsed through the snow and the ice to come to this place to sing of the goodness of God and to, to study his law. And I bet you didn't know that there's a relationship between snow and law. Psalm 147 verses 15 to 20 says this about the Lord. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. 
he has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Do you see the connection there between snow and the law? Both snow and the law are things that are given by the strong command of God. His, his word goes forth swiftly and effectively and results in the revelation of both the weather and of his will. I don't know how you feel about snow. I happen to love it. And that's not just because I was born in Canada. You know, it's not like Justin Trudeau has a gun to my head saying, you got to say that you love snow. <laughs> because he, well, he doesn't have a gun. <laughs> it's not like he's got like a paper straw to my throat saying, you got to love snow. I genuinely love snow. You know, honestly, when I wake up and I, I see that overnight the storehouses of snow have just been opened up, um, it really thrills my heart. How do you feel about the law? If you're like most people, you probably have a fairly negative view, if I'm guessing. Statutes and laws, they don't quite hit like flakes and crystals. But the ultimate verse uh, in, in Psalm 147 highlights the, the very rare and special privilege for the people of God to be given the law of God. What an incredible thing. It says he, he's not dealt this way with any other people. They don't know his laws. You do. And so praise the Lord. When David contemplates the law of God, He's like a kid at the bay window of his house at 7 a.m. on what is uh, most surely going to be a snow day. That's how David feels about the law of God. And delighting in the law of God doesn't mean it's easy. Just like the snow is, is beautiful, but it's also backbreaking. You know? And I need to confess to you that as we come to this section of Exodus... A, a section that's very dense and difficult, um, I have a lot of fear and trepidation. Okay, for the last few months, I've been anticipating this. Uh, actually, for the last year, I've been anticipating this portion of scripture. I've been agonizing about how best to lead you through it so that you don't, you know, get weary and worn out. So, you know... To, I, I feel like to walk through the next four chapters, actually the, the next nine, but I don't want to get ahead of myself, it's kind of like walking through four miles of snow um, that's four feet high. That's what it's going to, that's what it would feel like. These chapters constitute what's been called the Book of the Covenant. And really what it is is a practical outworking of the Ten Commandments that we've just seen but a practical outworking of those in a variety of potential situations. Um, you'll see that they take the form, if this happens, then this must happen, or whenever this situation arises, or whoever does this, and so on. So there are lots of potential situations where the specifics of these Ten Commandments need to be worked out. And so what you have are pages and pages of case law 
it, it's like the volumes, if you've ever been in a lawyer's office, it's like the volumes that are in his barrister bookcases. Now the natives taught us that when you have to go through four miles in four feet of snow, it's best to go on top of it, you know, it's best not to go through it, but to go on top of it. And so we'll take that same strategy through these texts. That's my plan. We're not going to trudge through them kind of verse by verse like we typically do, but rather we'll strap on some snowshoes and we'll survey them from the top. We'll approach it topically, so to speak. And over the next couple of months, I want to highlight some legal principles and problems. I know that must sound very interesting to you, um, but that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at some legal principles and problems that we encounter in these passages. And the first one, the first of these principles that we encounter in the law, the first and the most fundamental is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge, but it's also, it seems to me, the beginning of law-keeping. And our passage today serves as a sort of transition between the Ten Commandments and this Book of the Covenant, and it highlights for us the fear of the Lord as a fundamental principle, one that will be I expect very helpful for us as we consider what it means to um, serve the Lord and worship him and obey him. So I want to show you this principle by looking at the fear of the Lord at four touch points. And I'll give these to you as we encounter them in the text, but you'll be able to recognize them because they form the acrostic snow. Okay, if you're looking at your outline, that's how you can follow along. And let's look first at fear and here's the S, separation. Fear and separation. I think it's been good for us to have slowed down and to have taken our time to look at each of these Ten Commandments. Many of you have expressed that to me. You've shared to me how much you have enjoyed and been helped by this study. And I feel much the same way. It's been a real blessing to me. However, one of the dangers of doing that kind of thing is to kind of lose sight of the forest for the trees. In other words, it's very easy for us to forget the context, and it's clear to me that Moses doesn't want us to forget the context because the Ten Commandments are flanked on either side by descriptions of the dramatic revelation of the presence and the power of God. This, this is what is encompassing these Ten Commandments. And now that we've gotten through them, we want to be reminded of that glorious revelation because it's going to be incredibly important. So verse 18 is meant to kind of snap us back into the people's present reality. And remember that as they're hearing the law, they're seeing and they're feeling you know, peals of thunder and flashes of lightning. They're, they're, they're sensing, you know, the piercing uh, blasts of the trumpet, the mountain smoking. And any one of those phenomena would kind of stand on their own as a very imposing image of the power and the presence of God. But you put all of these four together 
And it just serves to multiply the manifest presence to an overwhelming degree. These people would have just been absolutely blown away. And we don't even have to guess about that because we read in the text the people's reaction. It says the people were afraid and they trembled. They were afraid and they were trembling. There was a whole lot of shaking going on. And it wasn't just the mountain that was trembling. The people were trembling. They were shaking in their boots. And let, notice also their body language. Body language is uh, fascinating to me. You know, it's a, it's a testimony to what everyone kind of knows deep down, if only subconsciously. And our bodies respond almost instinctively, intuitively to, to this understanding um, that somehow we possess. For example, when people feel threatened in some way, their bodies will communicate, you know, physical retreat. They'll, they'll step back a little bit. They'll try to create some distance and separation from the threatening person. They, they create this, this distance um, they introduce separation that they in, intuitively know is necessary. And you can see the same kind of behavior here from the people of Israel. The text says that in, in their fear, they stood far off. They stood far off. And that phrase is repeated two times for emphasis. You see it first at the end of verse 18 and again in verse 21. The people feared, and then they stood far off. This is what a healthy fear of God communicates. It communicates that there is a necessary distance between a holy, eternal, omnipotent God and, on the other hand, sinful and mortal and weak people such as we are. There, there's a necessary separation. What, what fellowship does one have with the other, the Bible will ask. And the rhetorical answer uh, question really requires no answer. In my opinion, their fear and their standing far off is not a sign of the people's misunderstanding. I think it's a sign of their instinctive understanding of what's going on here. And furthermore, I think it's totally in keeping with God's understanding, even with God's instruction. Recall that before this meeting, I know we're going back a couple of months, but just try to remember that before this meeting, God gave very strict instructions to Moses about setting limits around the base of the mountain so that the people would not approach him in his holiness, so that they wouldn't come too close because Coming close to the holy presence of God is dangerous. It's even critical. It, it would be deadly for them if they were to come too close. And so Moses, you'll recall, had to unroll like a huge orange snow fence around the base of the mountain just to, to keep people away. But even with that in place, you know, the people are backing away and standing far off because of this fear of the Lord. And this fear of God recognizes that there is a natural separation, a necessary separation between a holy God and a sinful people. 
And this reminds me of the, the vision that the prophet Isaiah had, just a couple passages before that, that one that Glenn read so wonderfully at the beginning of the service, Isaiah chapter 6. I'm sure you know it quite well. But just recall that Isaiah was treated to a vision of this high and holy king. The, the Lord God was flanked by seraphim, by these exalted angels, whose body language, by the way, was communicating a whole lot. Okay, They, ha- they were six-winged angels, and with two they were flying, and two more wings covered their face, and another two covered their feet. No one, not even an exalted angel, can look upon the living God and live. And and then in antiphonal praise, the angels sang out, holy, holy, holy. They cried out and sang holy. And that word holy, of course, shouldn't be reduced to the idea of separateness. Um, As Don Carson once said, it's not like they're singing, you know, separate, separate, separate. It shouldn't be reduced to that, but can we at least say that that is certainly a central element to holiness? And what was Isaiah's reaction as he saw something of the glory of God while the foundations of that temple just kind of shook and the house was filled with smoke? Isaiah declared, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm lost. I have unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Woe is me, for I have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. That is a dangerous vision. And both Isaiah and Israel teach us something of the fear of the Lord and how that fear of the Lord involves necessarily separation. That leads us to our next point. Fear and the need for a mediator. Fear and the need for a mediator. Now, separation solves a certain situation, okay? So it creates distance that's necessary between a holy God and a sinful people, but it also creates a problem. And the problem is that we desperately need this holy God. If we're ever going to be saved, we're going to need to experience in a profound way his presence and his power. His words are the words of eternal life. And if we stay separated, then that just means that we remain lost and undone. Woe is us. We can't stay separate, and yet we can't approach. And so you wonder what ever can be done. Well, here's the short answer. We need a mediator. We need a mediator. If only there was someone that could stand in between God and man, someone who would be able to approach the Lord in thick darkness. And uh, one thing's for certain, if there ever is going to be such a man, uh, he's going to need to be the man of God's own choosing. This isn't someone that we can put forward. This is going to be, have to be God's man. And by verse 19, 
you can tell Israel is already understanding the need for a mediator. And so they say to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. And that, that's more than just a mere suggestion. The, the inspired author to the Hebrews tells us that the hearers begged Moses. They begged him that no further messages be spoken to them. They couldn't even bear it. The people understood that they couldn't listen to the thunderous voice of this holy God and live. And so they asked that Moses mediate. They say, Moses, you speak to us. And obviously that implies, right, that God will first have to communicate to him his will to Moses. But then Moses would pass it along to the people and that they could handle. What the people are definitely not asking for is to hear the words of a mere man. You know, they're not interested in Moses telling them his own ideas or impose his own demands. No, they understand that they need the word of God, but they can't handle the word of God. They need a mediator to deliver it. So along with this demand, the people also indicate their full intention to obey. They say to Moses, you speak to us when you, what you hear from God, and we will listen. It'll be interesting, I think, for us to kind of track this and see if they make good on their commitment to obey that everything that God tells them through Moses. We'll, we'll want to keep track of that. But it's at least clear that that is their intention. They say, we will obey. Moses agrees, and so we read in verse 21, that the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. What do you think of that plan? I think it's probably first helpful to recognize that this is not ultimately their plan. Moses, as a mediator, has always been God's plan. And I think what the Lord is doing here is he's drawing this plan out of the people so that they would truly own it. And make no mistake, this is God's intention all along. If you just even take a peek back in the previous chapter, Exodus 19, verse 9, the Lord says to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud. You could, you could ask why that the people may hear when I speak with, to you and may also believe you forever. So you understand that a major part of this exercise was for God to authenticate Moses, his man. This is, this is God demonstrating Moses' authority as his messenger and his mediator in the eyes of the people. But it'll be interesting to track Moses, too, through these chapters and, and wonder how he's going to do as a mediator. And for, sorry for the spoiler here, but we're going to discover that Moses is not the mediator that we need. Given the gulf that, that separates us from a holy God, at the end of the day, Moses himself is just a mere man. 
he himself is a sinner. We're going to see that he, he's a, an angry person. He, he himself needs a mediator. And if we track this story even further, we discover the wonderful news that God gives us the mediator that we so desperately need. There is one mediator between God and man. It's the man, Christ Jesus. He's the final name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. He's the final word that is spoken by the Father. He is the word who was made flesh, who took on that flesh and dwelt among us. And what's more, Jesus is the one who, while we stood far off, Jesus is the one who climbed that mountain and who drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The, the thick darkness that signaled real separation, the darkness that indicated that the wrath of God was coming against sin, except it wasn't coming against me for my sin. It was coming against the Son because of my sin. And so we sing, who else can rescue me from my failing? Who else would offer his only son? Who else invites me to call him father? Only a holy God. Only my holy God. At the cross, we have come to God, the judge of all, and we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And we've come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And I trust that that's your truthful testimony today. I pray that you can be able to say that you have been reconciled to that holy God through faith in his son. The one mediator that stands available to you between man and God. I hope you'll be able to say that because you are united to Jesus in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, that there is no longer any fear of judgment and death and hell. I hope you can say that. And if you can't, then we'd love to talk to you after the service. You can come up to this front pew and there'll be folks there that would love to pray with you and, and point you to this mediator who can take away your sin. I hope that even though the wrath is removed from you through Christ, I hope that what does remain is your reverence for God. In fact, scripture argues that the fact that we have been forgiven so wonderfully in Christ, that fact ought to further our fear of the Lord not lessen it. It ought to further it. And this is the logic of Psalm 130, verse 4. It says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. Forgiveness for the purpose of fear. That, that doesn't sound quite right to us. It, it's right that we would fear the Lord because he is holy and righteous and because he's our judge. Indeed, 
The Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But a God who forgives our iniquity, this is what the psalmist is helping us to see, a God who forgives our sin is worthy of next level fear and praise. We can totally relate, I think, to Micah's marveling. He's lost in wonder, love, and praise when he says, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Saints, behold your God. He's a God who forgives your sin. Forgives so that you might fear him all the more. And this this forgiveness-fueled fear leads us nicely, I think, into the third thing that we want to see, which is fear and obedience. Fear and obedience. It's important, I think, to understand the relationship between fear and obedience. And if you don't quite know what this relationship is all about, a little trip to Walmart will help. Okay? So you'll see a kid, most likely you'll see this any given day, you'll see a kid pitching a fit, screaming like a little hellion. And then you'll hear his mom, you know, just pleading with him to stop. You'll hear her counting to three, but slowing way down at two and a half and giving every little integer between. And on and on it goes, you know. We, you wonder wh- why the willful and the persistent disobedience. And the answer is quite simple. That kid has absolutely no fear of his mother. Her, her voice is plaintive. Her, her threats are idle. And the kid knows that better than anybody. No fear. And something similar happens if you were to convince yourself that there's no God, or if there is, then he's just kind of far off, unconcerned, or maybe he's soft and cuddly, you know, a lot like Santa Claus, a lot like a mom who's a, who's a pushover. That's, that's what we like to imagine that God is like. And the great pastor and author, A.W. Tozer, once said, when men no longer fear God, they transgress his law without hesitation. The fear of consequences is no deterrent, Tozer says, when the fear of God is gone. And that's really the story of the book of Judges. That book, you may recall, is a disaster. It's an unmitigated disaster. The people's situation just goes from bad to worse. Their sin spirals out of control. And the repeated explanation, the repeated refrain really serves as the explanation, which is there's no fear of God before these people's eyes. And so they just did what was right in their own eyes. No fear of God. And that's the story of the United States in the year 2024. It's no secret. We, we scratch our heads and, you know, sometimes we, we wonder why, but really there's no big mystery why our culture is circling the toilet bowl. 
It's because there's no fear of the Lord whatsoever. But this must not be the case for the people of the Lord. They must learn a a holy reverence and awe of him. And the Lord has taken it upon himself to, to teach his people. Listen to Moses' explanation in verse 20. Moses says, do not fear, for God has come to test you that purpose, that the fear of him might be before you, that, here's a, here's a further purpose, that you may not sin. In other words, it's one of God's purposes in this terrifying display of his presence and his power That wasn't just to authenticate Moses as his messenger and as the people's mediator. It was for that purpose too. But it was also designed to teach the people the fear of the Lord. And then it it was designed for the further purpose that they would not sin against him. So that they would keep all of these commandments that he is speaking. Fear, it's fear for the purpose of obedience. And I think there's great potential for confusion in this verse because as the people are fearing, Moses says, do not fear. And then goes on to explain that they need to fear the Lord for the sake of their obedience. And so you're like, well, what is it, Moses? Fear or don't fear? Some commentators um, find a way out of this by saying that Moses is distinguishing between two kinds of fear, one unhealthy, one healthy. So they distinguish between being afraid of God, which ostensibly is not good, and having a fear of the Lord, which is good and healthy. And I'm not convinced that that's a distinction that Moses is trying to make here. Maybe I'm missing something, but... I'm not troubled by this too much. Okay, when Moses says, do not fear, I think he's simply speaking words of comfort and encouragement to this people. I think he's speaking words of grace. The same kind of grace that taught my heart to fear. The grace that taught my heart to fear and then that same grace, my fears relieved. There's no real contradiction there. Yes, this is a God to be feared. This is a God who is separate and holy and judges sin justly and righteously. This is a God who speaks to you such that you would die. But Moses says, do not fear. Because God has demonstrated his power and his presence, not for your obliteration, but for your obedience. It's a gracious thing for God to show us his glory that we might not sin against him. So let me ask you, how's your obedience going? It's a good question for January, third week of January. In the face of broken resolutions. I'm asking, are you struggling with sin? Are you finding yourself in a pattern of deliberate disobedience? Just willful rebellion against what you know God has commanded you you know exactly what God um, expects and 
demands you in terms of your relationship with your spouse, in regards to your anger, your anxiety, your sexuality. You know the commands of God, but still you sin. And here, here's a helpful diagnostic. How's your fear of the Lord? Is, is it before your face? The tempt, I understand the temptation is always before our face, but does a holy, reverent awe and love for the Lord loom larger in, in front of your face than does the temptation and the sin? This is the promise and the provision of the new covenant about which the prophets, especially Jeremiah, prophesied. And he's, he's referring to us in Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 39 to 40, when he writes, saying, Thus saith the Lord, they shall be my people, and I shall be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. God is gracious to instill in his people this holy, reverent fear of him for the sake of our obedience. The fear of the Lord's friends is the beginning, not just of wisdom, but of obedience. Let's look fourthly and finally at fear and worship. Fear and worship. Verse 22 is where the book of the covenant begins, technically, I suppose. And it begins with some instructions about worship. I think that's a, a great place to start because, you know, given the theme of this book, given the title that we've given to this sermon series, in Exodus, the people have been freed from their bondage, from their slavery. They have been freed to worship. That, that's our purpose as the people of God. It's, emancip it's emancipation for, not just so that you can be your own thing, do your own thing, be your own person. No, it's freedom, emancipation for the purpose of exaltation and evangelization. So it shouldn't surprise us or it shouldn't be sad for us to discover a long stretch of legal text I know that's very daunting for us, but, but think about it in context here. Why is that surprising? Why is that sad for us to discover all of these rules where the Lord is describing in precise detail how we might rightly respond to the fact that he has freed us and he's made us his people, and our only appropriate response to that is full obedience, service, and worship. We, we gave ourselves, prior to, our, prior to being rescued, these Israelites gave themselves fully to the service of their masters, the Egyptian taskmasters. But prior to our conversion, we gave ourselves fully to the devil. We carried out the will of, of him. We carried out the will of our flesh. We were servants. We were slaves. The only 
appropriate response for being rescued from all of that is to be under the, the good mastery of God and to give ourselves fully in obedience and worship to him. Of course, this is a God who comes in thick clouds and darkness. This is a God who thunders from a mountain. This is not a God, the point is, into whose presence you just waltz. This is not a come-as-you-are kind of a God, however you uh, feel comfortable or however you imagine. This is not that kind of a God, even in worship. God's not, God's not like, well, they, their heart is fine. Their, their intention is to worship me, so who cares about the details? No, this, consider the God who is demanding this worship. He, he gives these rules to us graciously for our protection. And the first and most fundamental thing we should know when it comes to worship is that we must worship only him. He is worthy of our exclusive worship because he exclusively is the God who has rescued us. And he exclusively is the God who has spoken to us. And so the, the Lord prefaces his instructions to the people of Israel in this way. Look at verse 22. He says, you've seen for yourselves that I've talked to you from heaven. And that's, that reminder, I think, is to put the fear of the Lord back before their eyes one more time. But I think there's even more that can be made of this. And listen to what Moses says to the people in Deuteronomy chapter 4, reflecting on this momentous event. There, Moses says, For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or has ever even been heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and live? That's, that's unthinkable. Has any other God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? Any, any other God do anything like that? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God and that there is no other besides him. What other God? Who else? There's no, there's no other God. There's no, no one else. And so come and behold him, the one and the only. Cry out, sing holy, forever a holy God. Come and worship a holy God and worship him alone. And so what here comes naturally in verse 23, a repetition of the first commands. You're to have no other gods before you. No graven images. No, don't form for yourself any gods of silver. Gods are gold. Gods of gold. Who are these gods? What have they done for you? There's one true God, and he alone has rescued you and revealed himself to you. And a fundamental part of your worship is going to be offering 
offerings and sacrifices, wherever and whenever God makes his name to be remembered because of his great acts and his, his gracious deeds towards the children of man, it's going to be appropriate, it's going to even be necessary for those people to respond by offering sacrifices to the Lord. Sacrifices of thanksgiving, um, for atonement, sacrifices of remembrance for all of the great things that God has done, and for all of the great things that God has promised to do. Sacrifices, offerings, all over the place. But even the altars that bear these sacrifices must be crafted carefully. They must be simple and unembellished. I think another way of saying this is they must not be human, if I could put it that way. They, they must not, by their intricate craftsmanship and stonework, end up being for the praise of mankind. No, the whole point of them is for the praise and the worship and the adoration of God. And actually, what God is teaching here is that when you use a human tool in the construction of an altar to him, you, you defile that altar. So God says, use the stuff that I made, okay? Use earth, use clay. You can use stone, but stones that I formed, not the stones that you shape with your tools, because as soon as your tool touches it, it becomes defiled. And I know you're going to want to build that altar high, but don't use steps to make it high, because then you're going to have to climb those steps, and that would mean that I'm going to have to see up your robe and your nakedness is going to be exposed. And that's a problem. Ever since Genesis 3, nakedness before God has been a problem. It's a symbol of our, our sin and disgrace, and it must be covered. And ever since the garden, the Lord God has taken it upon himself to cover our sin and to cover over our disgrace. He does that first with the skin of an animal, and he does this finally and fully by clothing us in the righteous garments of his son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And for that great work of redemption, he is a God to be feared. Brothers and sisters, let us fear the Lord, and may that fear lead us to obedience, wholehearted devotion and service. May that fear lead us to worship the one true and living God. Amen? Amen. Amen.